So uh, over the years, uh, as the retreats have come and gone, and as we have tried to maintain a, um, our practice uh, throughout the duration of our lives, the decades have given us um, increased sophistication and understanding as to what works and what does not in terms of final instructions. And early on, back in when I was practicing here as a yogi, the courses would end and the teacher would say, uh, just continue being mindful as much as you can through the course of your life. And I would very diligently try to apply that remedy only to feel extremely frustrated in my inability to do so. It would take me no longer than to get in my car and get on the freeway and somebody honk at me or pull in front of me where I would lose completely any sense of the retreat having ever been. And it's interesting that it takes only a second to lose the retreat and a number of days to actually enter the retreat. For instance, when we were out talking, when you were out talking yesterday, how quickly did you want to come back in the retreat when you heard the bell or the, the tea bell? How welcoming was silence? For some of you it was because you have a history with retreats. For others it was like, oh, I really want to, I really want to know a little more. I really... That sense of self-validation, the needs of the self, are often most fulfilled within interrelationships, interpersonal relationships. <clears throat> and so when you look at the beginning of the retreat, how difficult those first couple of days were, and then how easily the sense of intimacy with oneself is dissipated through the momentum of self-validation at the end of the retreat, you can see what we're facing in terms of our conditioned conditioning, because the quantity of conditioning that we have towards self-validation is so enormous compared to the small, heartfelt intentionality of intimacy, self-intimacy, that it gets steamrolled very quickly in our attempts to sustain it. And I think we can use any tool toward self-validation. A simple instruction like be mindful can, and for many of us did and does, feel like an extra burden to do during the day. My day is already filled. I already have a complete agenda. Now I have to add mindfulness on top of that. Because we're using mindfulness to self-validate from the sense of self. I need to be mindful. Now the Buddha's path for retreat environments, what the figure ground relationship to the certain tools 
that are used on retreat environments changes when we move back into our daily life. So we look at the Buddhist teaching and what was relevant and most important in a retreat sort of becomes the background and there's a foreground that comes forward to make our lives work spiritually that has not necessarily been emphasized on retreat. So I want to talk about the figure ground switch. Mindfulness for me, and quite likely for many of you, is not sufficient instruction. What does the Buddha path start with? It starts with wise view. Now why is mindfulness the seventh step in the Eightfold Path? good question to begin to ask. Why is wise view the, the first step? Maybe unless wise view is there, everything else is just self-serving. And so what is the essence of wise view? Don't listen to any edit of the teacher's explanations. Don't read commentary. Don't rely even on the sutta's reference exclusively. But look at oneself. What does it mean to switch views? View being what we take the world to be. What our eyes substantiate when we look out. When you look at me, I look at you. How do we hold the world? Because our mind's depiction of the world is me and you in this and that. We wake up in the morning and that's the view that most of us hold. And if we operate the other seven steps of the Eightfold Path from that view, we validate the assumptions of that view all along the way. I have to be mindful. So is that the way? What's wise view? The first step of wise view is knowing that what your eye see is an assumption, not the truth. To question that, to question me and you, that's just the way the brain has organized itself for functionality. I question that. I don't assume another way it is, I just question that one, because my heart questions that. Because look at the mess life is is in from that view. How can we not question that? And we hear the literature and see the books and listen to the tapes that profound another way life is organized beyond the separate and distinct objects that we take it to be. And we resonate when we hear Dharma. The reason we flock to like moths to the flame is because there's a resonance in us somewhere that acknowledges the truth of those words. Even though our eyes betray that truth with with a single perception. And so I just don't believe the mind. I don't believe what the mind is telling me. We have a deep sense of disbelief 
about what the mind has organized the world to be. And now we're in whole new territory. Now what's our guides for that new view? What, how do we step out to that? I don't, first of all, the world has been organized according to the shape of perception. So not only can I not trust my own mind's perception, 99.9 to the can't be trusted either. The externalization, the assumptions that the world has made, the laws the world has created. I don't mean the traffic laws. I mean the, the principles and strategies around which life is formed from that view cannot be what governs me. And you see, we can use anything to re-solidify the sense and strategies and efforts of unwise view. The Buddhist teaching, mindfulness, nothing is sacred to the mind. The mind will use anything to its advantage. But there's something that it can't touch. And that's the heart. But it tries to masquerade as the heart. Continually. So we have to know the near enemy of the heart. The mind's masquerading attempts, the charades of the mind. <coughs> like being nice. You see, this takes ruthlessness. The heart, to come to the heart, takes a ruthless perception and understanding. We have to throw everything out that doesn't work in that direction, in the direction of wise view, greater interconnectedness. Well, that seems cruel. From the mind's attempt of wanting to be nice, Ruthlessness seems cruel. No, it's not cruel. It's the very heart of kindness. I will not go that direction. Helping others as opposed to service. Now, why would I say that, you see? Like, why would I ever say that? How can he sit up there and say that? Because it simply is not based in the truth. When I'm nice, as opposed to kind, I will move with somebody's self-pity. I will operate from my own sense of self-depreciation. I will work from my own sense of unworthiness in order for people to like me. To respond to me so that I, can't, I won't have to feel the pain of my inadequacy, of my unworthiness. And I'll be operating on psychic conditions which I don't even perceive, but I think are very heartfelt. romantic, indulgent, 
but not true. And so much of our need to help the world comes from our own sense of lack of fulfillment, lack of contentment. Not from equals, not from equality, which is true, but from they need me. I keep a sign on my desk. Do not ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and then go out and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So now the path of the heart is the path of aliveness. It isn't in the direction of any particular form of interaction. You can be an astronomer or a social worker. You can be a dancer or an actor. And if it feeds your aliveness, if it feeds your interest in your own humanity, if it feeds your sense of wonder, you're feeding the world. If we get caught up in the spiral of thinking that helping is to the advantage of others. We keep the disadvantaged disadvantaged. This is raising everything up with our freedom. The heart doesn't see disadvantage. It certainly feels the impact of pain and then operates through that impact in equal and legitimate ways with that person or other. Can it not be that way? So the maxim, the axiom of our time is to do what makes us come alive. And if we move with that central theme as what our life can be built upon, then you'll find that not only your life becomes much more joyful and interesting, but your spiritual heart is constantly present in that life as well. And where are we most alive? Where we're most interested? Our interest is the natural point where life, our life, touches universal life. It's the points where we're naturally drawn towards touching it most intimately. And we can pursue our interest and foster not just superficial understanding, but move with our interest to the depth and richness of Dharma inquiry. For instance, you may be in a helping profession. Before I get to that, let me just, there there was one of the students in Seattle who was putting herself through uh, uh, graduate school and she was waitressing. 
And uh, she came to me as, uh, in an interview, and she says, I just hate waitressing. I said, uh, and uh, her attitude was just like a job, and I have to get through. So what do you want to do uh, when you, what, what is your degree um, going to be about? She says, oh, I'm, I'm getting a master's in social work. And I said, well, what's that for? And she says, to help people. And I said, well, can you see your waitressing as serving people? Can you just change the attitude, the second step on the Eightfold Path? Can you change your attitude so that you are working in alignment with what you want to do when, once you graduate? Maybe not with the content of what you want to do or the sophistication of what you want to do, but the heart with, with, with what you want to do, which is the importance of what you want to do anyway after you graduate. And suddenly, she said, her ability to serve as a waitress changed dramatically. She started serving the people rather than resenting them. Because she turned what was an objectionable experience into her heartfelt need, her interest. Perhaps we are therapists and we love the intimacy that that moment contains of client to therapist. So the theme of intimacy, what about self-intimacy? Well, no, 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 I'm not. What about self-intimacy? What about intimacy with friends? What about intimacy with life? So you can take that theme which moves in one direction and make it so that it applies to all directions. So then it becomes intimacy. Okay, what am I feeling right now? Not romantically, not getting lost in the mind's masquerading of the heart, but the clarity of, well, okay, with kindness, with caring attention. Now the mind forever waits to fix and locate you. That's its job. Its job is to reference and fix. It fixes you when you say, I am. You fix the world by saying she is, or he is, or they do. And we operate from the assumptions of that fixed quality all along the way. And as Anna said last night, life is not a noun, it's a verb. It's in flow, in movement. And it's only when it moves that the heart can feel its own resonance, can be alive. It can't, the heart can't move from fixation. That freezes the heart. So how do we keep it moving? How do we keep it flowing? How do we keep it? Because we have to answer that question. And when we do mindfulness from a burden, it's a fixation. You're just adding, okay, the task at hand is for me to be spiritually mindful. <laughs> Where's the spirit in that? 
where's the aliveness in that? So how do I, what are tools that have been very helpful in keeping that spirit alive? There's one above all others that Anna has, I think both Anna and Susan have hinted in their talks. And that's the spirit of inquiry, of questioning, of wonder. The mind wants an answer. The heart wants the question. Where do we think creativity comes from? From the answer or from opening to the question? Where do we think spontaneity comes from, from God's sake? From knowing what I need to do? from opening to the question and not knowing. You see, I mean, you can feel it. When you're out of control, that can be the worst feeling that we have, being out of control. And then we assert greater and greater will to come back into control. But what about that feeling of being out of control? What about that state of being out of control where the ground is shaking and it's all verb? You see? Play with that one. Okay, let me see what this is about. Wow, this is really uncomfortable. Of course it's uncomfortable. Because <laughs> you're not in control. But don't be so quick to assert it, to assert an influence upon it. Just feel it. Feel the ground shaking. You can feel that. We can open to that. What about... There's a tool I give the Seattle Sangha. I call it a vertical question. Each of you have perhaps heard a word sometime during the the course of this retreat or sometime in the course of your spiritual unfolding that has a certain personal reference or resonance with you. Contentment, peace, love, tranquility, freedom. Just for a second, just find that word. What word, wholeness, completeness, contentment? Now, if that word resonates with you because there's something in you that feels the need or movement of what that word means to you. It's an interest. So we give ourselves a vertical question, not a horizontal question, not a play of analysis, Where is their contentment in this moment? Well, I see that when I... It's not that. It's not an analysis or a justification of why I'm not content in this moment. Or if you had parents like I had, you wouldn't be content either. It's none of that. It is an immediate question that forces you down to the place where there is the experience of discontentment. If your word is, where is their contentment? Where is their contentment in this moment? Well, I'm, I'm, anxi- I'm anxious. I'm, then let me bring contentment to that. See, the heart 
the heart trumps the mind. You know paper, rock, scissors? <laughs> paper wraps rock. The heart wraps the mind. All you have to do is say, where is their contentment in this moment? And wherever it is that your discontent, which is a factor of mind, is suddenly covered with the heart of contentment, and then the whole thing gets moving again. Where is their love in this moment? It's not an objection to the discontentment. It's not an irritation with the discontentment. It's not a trying to relieve ourselves of that. It's a complete covering of it, a complete immersion. Okay. Okay, I can see. I can just not, not resistant. And when we don't resist, see, this is very deep inner work, but it can be done in your life, on the bus. And as soon as we access that word, okay, because the word only has substance within resistance. And as soon as we bring non-resistance, which is whatever word you're forming in your mind now, and you apply it, contentment, love, ease, patience, that, those words are words of non-resistance. And as soon as you bring non-resistance to where it is that you are resisting, the heart is in full bloom. And your way is clear. And you're also mindful. Mindfulness comes in in its natural unfolding of the Eightfold Path. But in order to make that work, you have to be willing to go to where it's painful. If you want to know joy in your life, this is the direction of joy. People say sometimes, well, you spend so much time dealing with pain. Why can't we talk about joy? Because you can't talk about joy without talking about pain. They are not in opposition to one another. Okay, where is their discontentment? Where is their contentment in this moment? You go to this sense of discontent. You go to the pain of how we're holding ourselves in relationship to that. Not let that feed a whole symptom of behaviors that try to get over our discontentment. But rather to embrace that discontentment with contentment. And within that contentment, we begin to see why it is and how it is that we have held the world from wrong view. Nobody likes me. Nobody likes me we say to ourselves in that terribly hurtful space in there. Okay, I can feel that. We just keep bringing more contentment to that. Okay, I can feel that. Is that true? And honest question last night, is that true that nobody likes me for God's sake? Have I ever asked that question? Have I ever tried to verify whether that has any relevance in, at all? And what if everybody in the world didn't like me? So what? <laughs> That's the ruthlessness.
That's the ruthlessness, you see? This is independent. Freedom is freedom. Anna says, I try to argue with the... I'm not going to argue. It's not an argument. It is... (laughs) 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 But it's passion. I feel it in me. So... Okay, this is it. Then, no matter what, freedom is freedom from conditions, freedom from fixation. Okay, so that's it. I know that. So, okay, that's it. And to invite that question invites us to a sense of wonder. I don't know where I'm going now. This is not easy. I'm out of control because when you ask a question, you are out of control. There's nothing, I need the answer to, I've got to find the answer because when we ask a question, we have no assurance. There's no guarantee. There's no ground under me. There's no firm terra firma. And yet that's it. That's the realm of the heart. That's the field of play. That's joy. And so the other side of joy is fear. Okay, that's okay. Fear is just the mind's attempt to get you away from joy, to get you back to a firm ground under your feet, to assert its influence, its dictates, its view, its assumptions. Not going that way. I don't care. That is not what my life is going to be about. So that's it. And I'll go anywhere. That I need to. On that field. In that territory. In that environment. Of the heart. And I will not step. into the crazy dysfunctionality of mental projection. And the Buddhist tools of inquiry, investigation, it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And from my point of view, it's the definition of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Uncovering the Dharma. How are you going to uncover the Dharma unless you ask a question? Unless you're willing to look without assertion. I just think it has been misinterpreted. (laughs) 
another very important aspect is ethical behavior. The five precepts. Because each of the precepts are not moral commandments, but invitations to give up unwise view from which the precepts are enfractured to the precepts, to the view of wholeness from which the precepts are kept. So if we find ourselves violating one of the five precepts, and again, just to remind what they are, to refrain from harm or killing, to refrain from taking what isn't offered, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from saying that which is not true, and to refrain from taking drugs or drink which cloud the mind. When we step over the bounds of one of those precepts, it means that our view, we're in the wrong view, and it's a like a, a cow touching a electric fence. Oh, okay. Because well. <laughs> it hurts. It hurts. It hurts to do that. That's the, that's the buzz. Of the elect- that's the fence jolting us. Oh, okay, back, back. So we look for every way that we're in unwise view. We do not look for wise view. Wise view is what's on the other end when we release ourselves from unwise view. It's not a new view. And that's very uncomfortable. You see, that's the question. When we question something, what is it? What is it? What is it? We're not in a view. See? What's, what's this about? What's going on? That's, when we're out of control, it's like we're, the view is gone. And there's another tool which I find ma- many people find helpful in keeping us within wise view, and that is what I call reverse cues. There's a whole set of emotions. Most of the emotions that we think of as unpleasant, impatience, anger, fear, annoyance, all of those, which are only possible within unwise view, which cannot manifest unless we hold the world as this and that me and other. And we can use those unwise, those emotions from unwise view to cue us, to as a cue. Okay, wait a second, let me connect here. Let me get back into connection. Anger. But you can feel the power of anger is to split off because self-righteousness is such a powerful state. It is the mind king of the hill. Don't you tell me that I... It's like, oh, it's just a... There is no... You are never more powerful than in, our, than in your self-righteousness. 
never more defined, never clearer in outline. And yet that is not the way. <laughs> and that's how you say, you say, okay. So you may take some time away, settle down. Okay, let's, let's talk about this again. Now when you're willing to listen to someone, you cannot be self-righteous. So the antidote to anger is listening. Because in order to listen to someone, you have to give up your view. If you listen through your view, you're not listening. You're just waiting for them to stop speaking so you can tell them what's right. (laughs) So if we actually give up, if we're willing to listen to the other person's side, we cannot sustain self-righteousness, and therefore we cannot sustain unwise you. Therefore you cannot sustain the anger, and the anger goes. And the moment you listen, there is no anger. Isn't that interesting? And there it is, right there. I don't think there's, there's, I mean, there it is. And most of the time, we're not going to give up our self-righteousness. To hell with you. I don't care about this spiritual crap. (laughs) (laughs) But the more we exercise the heart, the more the heart demands exercise. And it won't let you get away with anything after a while. It keeps making you turn back. God. Okay. Yes, dear, thank you. But now tell me what was the... (laughs) Oh, Lord. And you eat humble pie. Eat humble pie. (laughs) And we were talking about generosity yesterday. See the generosity. So you can play with all of these different parmies like generosity and patience as eating humble pie. Because the opposite of that, the reverse cue of all that is the fixation of mind that protects self. Selfishness is the opposite of generosity, right? So, the ex- okay, let me just, okay, let me just be generous. So, where is there generosity in the middle of my selfishness? I apply the vertical question. Where is there? Where is this? Now, come on, what is this? Okay, to be generous with anything is to allow it to be itself, and we just keep moving in that way. It's very helpful to have a daily sitting practice because the sitting practice is a practice from wise view. Even though you may be thinking the whole time, you're still allowing yourself to release the burdens of the day, the things, the encrustation that creates the view of fixation. You're allowing yourself 45 minutes of relief from view. But don't be too quick to end the retreat or the daily sitting. Don't be too quick to get up and get out and do what you... Let the eyes be soft. I see some of you walking around like you just come into the retreat on the last day. 
Life is already taking you over. You might as well have already left. Where is this? Is this about this week? And that's it? No. Can't we carry it forth? Can't we at least have some intentionality to have it more than just what it has been a week? It takes effort to do this, to change the view. I'm not giving you a way out. This isn't the solution away from effort. Now you don't have to try. It's not that. The third step on the Eightfold Path is wise effort. This takes a lot of, really, awareness. See, we start with the thing that we end with. (laughs) The means we employ is the ends we seek. Okay. So that's the best shot I have for (laughs) sending you off. And I wish you the very best in your enlivening into a new view. This isn't going to be a romantic statement. I just wish you the best. May you be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.